Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by economist Dr. Martin Keim to speak about food security globally. If you're watching the show for the first time, please consider going to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and getting on our mailing list. That way, you'll be notified every time a new episode drops. You can also donate to the show by hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. See you in a bit with Dr. Martin Keim. Joining me now to speak about issues of food security is Professor Martin Keim. He's the director of the Center for Development Research in Bonn here in Germany. So thank you very much for joining me today, Professor. Thanks for having me. Well, I think one of the entry points into our discussion today is obviously the grain deal between Russia and Ukraine, which unfortunately has fallen through. And over the past year, this grain deal has really helped the global south with food security to ensure that they you know, are able to put enough food on the table. So perhaps we can first discuss what the implications are of this grain deal falling apart. Uh, yes, sure. I mean, let's uh, think last year uh, when the uh, Russian uh, aggression and the war broke out uh, in February. I mean, uh, we have to understand that both Russia and Ukraine are not only very large uh, food producers, uh, but also very large food exporters. Um, so together, these two countries export around uh, a third uh, of the total wheat uh, that's traded internationally. Um, for maize, it's also large for other grains, for uh, sunflower oil, uh, large quantities and large shares. Uh, and uh, these exports, uh, most of them go out uh, through the Black Sea uh, normally and uh, Black Sea harbors. Uh, and uh, with the outbreak of uh, the war, uh, for um, a couple of weeks, uh, there were no ships going out. Uh, and then uh, because it was war zone, and uh, then the Russian ships uh, were starting to go out, but the Ukrainian ships not, um, because they were blockaded uh, by Russian ships, uh, and uh, they just couldn't leave uh, the ports without uh, being shot. And that situation persisted for a couple of months and it led uh, to uh, skyrocketing prices on international markets um, and uh, uh, that means uh, all those countries that are dependent on food imports uh, had not only to pay uh, much much more prices were doubling in a relatively short period of time they didn't only have to pay much much more but some of these countries were just in, unable to get the quantities they needed uh, because there was this shortage on international markets. And then uh, in the summer of 2022, this grain deal uh, uh, with uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, with the uh, backing of Turkey and the United Nations uh, was um, implemented and established. Uh, and that meant that gradually also the Ukraine exports could resume. Uh, and that led uh, to coming down of markets, prices uh, internationally uh, went down um, to, uh, well, uh, more normal levels. They were still high, but uh, much lower than they used to be during peak times. Uh, and uh, that was good uh, because many of the uh, poor countries with food insecurity are importers of food. Uh, and that means uh, they had better, uh, much better access uh, and uh, some of the worst uh, crisis uh, that we were all concerned about uh, could be prevented. 
And now this uh, situation came to a halt with Russia, uh, you know, uh, stepping out of uh, this deal uh, recently. And uh, now prices um, for uh, grains uh, are going up internationally again. Uh, they haven't, you know, shot up like doubling of prices. Uh, they have uh, gone up uh, for the last uh, 10 days. Uh, and there are some concerns about, uh, again, food insecurity uh, increasing in the world. And we are particularly looking at a bunch of countries in Africa, the Middle East uh, and in Asia. Uh, and uh, so there's uh, scarcity of uh, quantities. Uh, there's uncertainty. The situation is not as bleak as it used to be in uh, 2022, simply because uh, some of the quantities now go out uh, via land from Ukraine. They go out um, by uh, train, they go out by trucks, uh, and so parts of the exports happen. Uh, but uh, still, it's a situation um, that's uh, increasing uh, the international risks of food insecurity. Well, Ukraine has been known as the breadbasket of the world. And of course, Ukraine has you know, provided so much grain to the global south. But of course, it's not the only source of grain in different cereals. So what have countries been doing to meet their agricultural and food needs? Have they been diversifying or have there been more perhaps projects on the ground or, or subsidies to be able to become more self-subsistent or self-sufficient? Uh, yeah, a bunch of different things. I mean, first of all, uh, there are other countries exporting and Russia uh, is uh, the largest wheat exporter and Russia continues to export and Russia had um, a good harvest in 2022 and also a very good harvest uh, as it seems to be this year. So Russia is trying to uh, make up uh, for some of the quantities that Ukraine is not exporting. Um, and so Russia is basically uh, stepping out of the grain deal in order to hurt Ukraine uh, and Ukraine not being able to export uh, and benefiting from rising prices uh, through uh, selling its own wheat and promising to some African countries uh, to uh, will uh, will provide you uh, with the wheat. So um, obviously that's the the narrative uh, that uh, President Putin is providing, and uh, that's not necessarily in the interest uh, of uh, you know all African countries or of the rest of the world. But what's happening? I mean. Uh, Obviously, all prices were high, and uh, and uh, other. Uh, I mean, every country that needs to import was trying uh, in the short run uh, to get imports from somewhere else, um, and uh, so hunger numbers did increase, but uh, uh, but not uh, as much as was uh, people were concerned about. Um, I mean, producing more. Um, is certainly an option that can only uh, go so far because uh, you only have the land resources in your country that you have uh, and you cannot just, you know, extend the, lean, uh, the land resources. Uh, using more fertilizer uh, was um, is generally an option for some countries, but was uh, difficult because fertilizer prices were skyrocketing as well. Uh, so this means uh, there aren't, uh, you know, short-term measures that countries could implement in order to really, uh, you know, increase their own production. 
Of course, in the longer run, uh, investing in new types of technologies uh, is an option, but that's not happening overnight. Um, so uh, the question of, uh, you know, where are the foods uh, coming from that uh, some uh, African countries need in the future remains a relevant question. And increasing uh, African own agricultural production uh, is an important goal, uh, but obviously that needs investment uh, that uh, takes some time. Well, we, before we get into some of those other technologies, I was wondering, before the war in Ukraine, um, these other factors, economic factors, were also affecting food security, such as, um, well, the pandemic, which had all sorts of supply chain issues, and of course, um, inflation. So ha have you seen countries become a bit more resilient, particularly in the global south, to be better equipped to deal with these issues? Or has it actually become worse in the past few years? I mean, first of all, it became worse in the past few years. Uh, exactly those factors that you're mentioning contributed to a situation of food insecurity that was there anyway. I mean, uh, we we still have a, a world where um, close to 800 million people are going uh, hungry to bed every, uh, every night. But um, the uh, pandemic uh, led to a situation where uh, hunger numbers increased uh, and uh, the supply chain disruptions uh, that you uh, mentioned were uh, an important uh, part uh, of that. But the other part uh, that's often uh, not sufficiently clearly seen is the income losses uh, that uh, the lockdown measures uh, that were implemented in most countries uh, really meant. I mean, you're talking about poor people who are deriving their income from informal employment. And all this informal employment for a number of months uh, just stopped. Uh, and this means uh, the income stream stopped. Uh, so it was not only um, that uh, prices of foods increased, but at the same same time increased uh, incomes decreased uh, and this uh, is uh, a clear reason for um, increasing hunger uh, especially among poor people who need to spend a large share of their income on food anyway um, and uh, the inflation continued not only because of the COVID pandemic but also because of uh, rising energy prices uh, and uh, and other um, international issues uh, and uh, the, uh, the Russian war and uh, so uh, we are still um, seeing a situation where food prices are high um, by uh, historical standards, uh, and uh, this is making um, the goal of food security more difficult. So, yes, we are living in challenging times, uh, and uh, and uh, food security cannot be taken for granted, unfortunately. So if countries are so integrated into the world economy, how can they ensure that they have food security? I mean, how much control do they even have over world prices? And is there anything that they can do in terms of local strategies to make uh, those to lower those prices or to make access to food more affordable? Yeah, I mean, every country, of course, from a resilience perspective, needs to see uh, what's produced at home and, uh, and where you rely on international markets. But 
Um, we're looking, uh, especially with a view to Africa, to a situation where the population numbers are increasing and uh, the land resources are scarce. And that's something that we're also seeing in, in many parts of Asia, not only in Africa. So many developing countries, um, uh, even if they increase their agricultural production, which should have high priority, uh, will not become self-sufficient overall in food. So they will depend on, on food imports. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why the borders need to stay open. Uh, there is nothing like, uh, you know, food self-sufficiency for every country. If all countries would close down their borders, uh, we would have, uh, you know, numbers of hungry people that are um, probably three or four times as high as they are anyway. And... Um, that's also the reason why Russia and Ukraine uh, with uh, not so large populations, but a lot of land and a lot of water available uh, are major exporters. I mean, we just have an unequal uh, distribution or an unequal ratio of population versus land and water resources. And this will even become worse with climate change because climate change, um, all the predictions and all the, the uh, models are telling us uh, the countries worst affected are those in the global south, are the countries in Africa or the countries in Asia where um, heat waves and um, agricultural production uh, will become so difficult um, and uh, and also much more erratic. Uh, there is a drought uh, in one season, there is suddenly a flood in another season, uh, and of course, uh, agricultural production suffers from that. These effects will be much worse uh, in Africa and Asia than uh, in Europe, for instance, uh, and this is uh, leading to um, you know the additional insight that without trade. Uh, this is not uh, not going to work. Um, so countries should increase their agricultural production by wise investments to the extent possible. But that's not uh, instead of imports. Imports will remain important for many countries and um, diversification not being dependent on one or two countries. This is what may countries help uh, to not, uh, you know, be too much affected by international disruptions, because if one country drops out, which can always happen, uh, then you have um, a sufficient, uh, you know, number of uh, other sources where to get your food from. Well, you did mention trade, which is, of course, a very important factor. But how do you balance the right amount of trade with, you know, trying to avoid the destruction of local economies? and with maybe even instituting certain protectionist measures, because the EU, for example, heavily subsidizes its agricultural sector. And, you know, if, if certain African countries were to do the same, would that help them out or would, or would that have um, the opposite effect? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the question is, uh, what do we mean with subsidies? Um, what we need in Africa is a major investment into agriculture. And this uh, means agricultural technology. This means agricultural uh, training and education for farmers. Uh, this means uh, improved uh, road and irrigation infrastructure and so on and so forth. So um, major investments are needed. Uh, and this is, uh, of course, uh, a subsidy that money has to come from uh, public uh, funds, be it African governments, uh, but uh, certainly also uh, to some extent from the international donor community. And um, 
African countries and also Asian countries are well advised uh, to prioritize investments into agriculture um, because, yeah, I mean, it's just so important uh, for food security. It's not only for producing more food, it's also because many of the poor and hungry people are farmers. Uh, so it's also uh, providing an improvement uh, into uh, their income earning potential by, uh, you know, increasing um, their productivity. This is really, really important. But when we talk about resilience, then uh, so far we have talked about uh, mostly resilience, uh, uh, meaning insulation from international shocks. Uh, but uh, resilience also means being resilient to climate shocks. And when you have closed borders, you're doing everything at home. And then, uh, you know, climate shock strikes, uh, then, of course, you're uh, much less resilient. So you need to balance uh, international sourcing with, uh, with uh, local production. And I think the answer what the right balance is depends on the conditions in every country. How, how much land do you have? Uh, what, um, what potential do you have to produce certain types of crops uh, versus others? Um, and uh, what other uh, economic potentials do you have uh, in order to provide um, income and employment uh, for your local population? So there is no one size fits all solution. But I think the general statement uh, that uh, we need uh, stronger investments into African agriculture is certainly one that uh, holds across the board. Would this investment be primarily for larger agricultural companies like big agrochemical companies or would there be a way to also encourage small-scale forms of farming such as agro-ecological um, forms of farming and what would that what would those small forms of farming actually look like on a bigger scale? I mean, a focus on the small farm sector is uh, very important simply because hundreds of millions of poor people de uh, depend on uh, small scale farming for their livelihoods. Um, so uh, we can't imagine a situation of only large scale farms where all of these people would lose their jobs and their, their uh, livelihoods. So a focus on small farms is important, but uh, small farms doesn't necessarily mean it's low tech. Uh, I mean, small farms also need access to good uh, technology, be it uh, improved seeds uh, that are not only high yielding, but also robust uh, to climatic uh, and, and weather uh, shocks uh, that are resistant to pests and diseases. Uh, they may also uh, benefit, small-scale farmers may also benefit from uh, certain forms of digital technologies, uh, providing better access to information, better access to weather forecasts uh, and uh, market uh, intelligence. So uh, what we shouldn't do is equate small-scale farming with uh, subsistence, uh, low-tech agriculture. We need to make uh, small-scale farmers fit for the market with the best appropriate and locally adapted uh, technologies available. And that is technology that partly uh, has to come from the public sector, but obviously also technology that can come uh, to some extent from the private sector. So there's uh, there's nothing against, uh, you know, uh, competitive markets and uh, companies providing technologies uh, to small scale farmers as long as these technologies are really targeting the needs uh, of small-scale farmers and are accessible in terms of uh, yeah, uh, what they cost uh, and, and what the benefits uh, are that, uh, that they can bring to smallholders. But arguably, the market hasn't really been the best arbiter or, or efficient way to ensure that 
uh, farmers are able to get all of their goods on, you know, the local or the, the international market. I mean, it seems like there's been a lot of waste when it comes to food. A lot of food is wasted. Not everything that is produced is actually consumed. And there are also inequalities between what certain people consume in terms of the nutrition, the content of the, the food they're consuming versus, um, you know, people in, in perhaps wealthier countries. So what would the interventions be in the market, the economic interventions necessary to ensure that, you know, people are, are consuming enough food that's actually nutritionally dense, so to speak, and that there aren't as many inequalities? Yeah, I mean, one of the important factors is uh, that uh, a few preconditions need to be met uh, for markets to be able to work efficiently and, and fairly. So um, to give you the example of uh, road infrastructure, I mean, uh, if small scale farmers and communities uh, have no access to roads, uh, then they cannot uh, get the inputs and technologies they need on time and they can also not uh, market uh, their produce. Or if they market it uh, and with very bad road conditions, uh, you know, a lot of this will be lost and spoiled. So um, here we need investments into improved infrastructure. And uh, this can only come from the public sector. So there is no company that will build uh, the road uh, to a small scale village, at least um, most of the time. So this is really something where public investments are needed. Once that public investment is made, um, markets start to work uh, better and then uh, you know uh, also uh, private sector involvement uh, will increase and uh, you did mention uh, nutritious access to nutritious foods uh, infrastructure is particularly important uh, for perishable uh, fruits and vegetables and these types of foods because you know when you have a truck of grain uh, or even a donkey cart of grain I mean uh, that's not going to spoil so fast uh, so even if it takes longer um, and uh, there's a bumpy road you will get uh, your wheat or your rice grain um, to the market but not your tomatoes and not your your pumpkins and what have you. I mean, uh, on a bumpy road, um, they will just, uh, you know, spoil and, uh, and be damaged. Uh, and uh, if it's not getting fast enough under some cooling conditions, uh, it's also not going to work. And this is one of the reasons why uh, access to really nutritious foods um, is so difficult, uh, especially for poor people in rural areas. They may harvest some of the nutritious foods during certain seasons of the year but for the rest of the year uh, they are running without access to um, sufficient nutritious foods because it's not uh, reaching their places uh, coming in from from uh, other places so um, markets aren't necessarily bad but markets need uh, to be put into a position that they can really work um, and uh, that's what's uh, key and when it comes to nutrition i'm sure this is a very complex issue but would you say it's more of a supply side or a demand side issue? Is it more about investing in this particular, you know, you know, green leafy vegetables or other produce that's really healthy and nutritious and ensuring that those prices are maybe kept low so that people can afford them? Or is it also about educating people to, you know, buy the right products and to kind of incentivize them to consume healthy food? 
It's a mixture of both, obviously. But uh, so far, um, you know, uh, when you're educating people and making them aware of how important it is uh, to eat, uh, the, you know, enough quantities of nutritious foods, uh, but these are either not available or they are uh, very, very expensive during large parts of the year, uh, then the whole awareness building uh, doesn't really help. On the other hand, if you're producing much, much more and increase availability and prices are reduced, but uh, there's no awareness, uh, I mean, it's also culturally, um, uh, that people uh, obviously are adjusted to what uh, is available at affordable prices. So yes, um, that type of uh, awareness building and changing uh, consumption behavior and preferences uh, is important as well. I anyway think that um, the whole question of uh, food security, uh, we need to always keep both the supply side and the demand side uh, in, uh, in, in the uh, picture. Um, also, uh, when we when we look at uh, how can we on our small planet uh, actually um, ensure that there is a f sufficient uh, food produced uh, for 10 billion people um, and potentially more, uh, well, it's going to work partly with the right technologies, but it's not going to work uh, when we're all uh, consuming and having lifestyles as we here uh, in Western Europe uh, tend to have uh, with lots of uh, meat and animal sourced foods consumption. So uh, it's a mixture um, and uh, consumption changes uh, will be required not only for poor people that suffer from food insecurity, but will re be required also from rich, country, uh, from rich people and countries uh, that just just um, have too much waste uh, and uh, and use uh, way uh, too many resources and have a um, climate and environmental footprint uh, that's just uh, completely unfair from a global perspective. And also, you know, we're kind of getting into the issue of climate change now. You've just brought that up. How do these policies of food security ensure that there's still a certain amount of biodiversity uh, maintained, that there's no or that there aren't high levels of land degradation and that externalities, environmental externalities or planetary boundaries, you know, the limits of the planet and the ecosystems we're living in. How, how do f food security experts deal with those issues and, and try to find ways around that? Yeah, I mean, the um, goal is to provide um, sustainable food security and sustainable means that it's not only uh, about uh, enough uh, and healthy food uh, for human health, uh, but we also need uh, to preserve environmental health. Uh, so for it's for it's for the planet um, as a whole. And when we are looking at uh, how much food and agriculture contributes to some of the big environmental issues, climate change, biodiversity loss, we're seeing, wow, it's tremendous. I mean, uh, the food and agricultural sector is responsible for about one third of all uh, climate gas emissions. Um, and uh, it's very clear that we can't continue like this. If we want to get uh, to a climate neutral economy, um, then uh, it's also the agricultural sector that needs to find ways of, uh, well, uh, emitting less. Uh, uh, 
climate gases and um and the same for for uh biodiversity i mean when you're looking at what are the biggest threats uh, threats to biodiversity internationally it's the expansion of uh the agricultural land into the forest into the natural uh, habitats so in a way we need to find uh, technologies that need less land because uh land conversion is not only the biggest threat to biodiversity but is also one of the major sources of uh, greenhouse gas emissions i mean if you're if you're considering a, a hectare of forest uh, that you're uh, deforesting in order to plant uh, wheat uh, on it all the carbon uh, that's being uh, in the soil and in the biomass uh, you know is uh, lost is is going into the atmosphere and is contributing to climate change one of the big big sources uh, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions so agriculture on less land um, can only work with better technologies right better technologies that provide uh, more uh, per hectare of land this is one of the avenues and the other avenues is we need to change consumption styles. I mean, uh, a meat heavy diet um, is needing so much more land and is leading to so much more uh, greenhouse gas emissions than a plant-based diet. Uh, and this means um, plant-based diets, which doesn't necessarily mean we all have to become vegans, but we seriously need to reduce uh, high quantities of uh, meat and animal sourced foods. Um, that's, true for people who eat a lot. Um, and that's for most people in the rich world. Um, if you look at Africa, um, for instance, where uh, poor people eat very little animal sourced foods, you would say, well, animal sourced foods also have a role to play uh, in, in healthy uh, nutrition uh, to some extent. Uh, so we need uh, obviously um, locally uh, adjusted solutions, um, uh, but uh, the consumption side is an important uh, factor in this. And uh, one last question, what would the role of fertilizers and pesticides be? Because you, you've mentioned now that we need to stop burning fossil fuels, you know, we need to decarbonize, but what do the big agrochemical companies, what role do they play? And is it just the pesticides and fertilizers themselves that have environmental impacts or is it you know, the companies themselves and, and their scope one to three emissions that have other downstream effects and other effects on the agricultural sector that are also potentially contributing to these uh, environmental catastrophes. I mean, fertilizers do contribute to greenhouse gas emissions uh, through two channels. The first is uh, producing nitrogen fertilizer is very energy intensive. And this energy is uh, today coming primarily from burning fossil fuels. Fertilizer production uh, is responsible for about 1% uh, of uh, the global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the other factor how fertilizer contributes to greenhouse gas emissions is because uh, the uh, nitrogen compounds uh, lead uh, to certain nitrous oxide emissions, which are potent uh, greenhouse gases when you're applying them to the field. And especially if you're applying them uh, with under conditions that are not uh, technically sound. Um, so yes, fertilizers contribute uh, to climate change. However, um, the 
share of how much fertilizers contribute to climate change is probably less than what you expect. Um, it's less than 10% uh, from, from all the uh, emissions from agriculture. Uh, I, I mentioned that food and agriculture is responsible for about one third uh, of the greenhouse gas emissions. Only one tenth of this is due to fertilizer. The much bigger uh, uh, source of greenhouse gas emissions uh, is on the one hand uh, livestock keeping uh, and is on the other hand land use change. So if you're using fertilizers in order to prevent more forests from being uh, you know, cut down, uh, then we're actually doing something good uh, to the climate. And this is not necessarily the case in Western Europe, where we use a lot of fertilizer anyway. Here, reductions in fertilizers would be useful. But if you look at uh, many places in Africa where smaller farmers uh, hardly use any fertilizer uh, and bec because they don't have access to fertilizer, uh, and they often, uh, in order to produce more, uh, go into the forest. Uh, they cut um, you know, down the forest in order to produce more. And if they uh, were given better access to fertilizers, uh, that deforestation could be less. Um, and uh, starting from very low amounts of fertilizers, increasing fertilizer use is something that's good for the climate and the environment because it has so many positive effects on saving land. So it's not necessarily a zero fertilizer world um, that's uh, the, the perfect world. Uh, it's a world uh, that has much less fertilizer use than what we typically use here in Europe or also China is using heavy amounts of fertilizer. Um, but we need to, to see the trade-offs. Uh, I mean, uh, finding ways and technologies uh, that help to have a lot of production per unit of land is something good. And I'm not saying fertilizer is the, the only way of doing that. We need certain amounts of fertilizers, but obviously uh, good breeding and good technology that can help uh, that plants grow well with less fertilizer because their root systems use the fertilizers better or we are applying the fertilizers in a more targeted way. All of these are useful technologies, uh, but a zero fertilizer world uh, is one that's problematic because when we are harvesting, we are extracting nutrients uh, from the field. And to some extent, uh, we need to get the nutrients back onto the field. Otherwise, um, there is no sustainable harvest in the future. And that would be the same for pesticides then, that you would have well, to... I mean, pesticides really have to be seen in a slightly different way because pesticides are not adding nutrients. Pesticides are one way of, uh, of uh, you know, dealing with a problem uh, of pest pressure. Um, here, I think that um, other technical ways of dealing with pests uh, have a large potential, uh, more resistant uh, varieties, for instance, uh, more diversity um, which uh, in the fields, which can help uh, to reduce pest pressure, agroforestry systems where you're combining um, trees uh, with, uh, with annual crops uh, can really help to reduce pest pressure. So I'm not necessarily saying that uh, everything can be done completely with zero pesticides, uh, but there are very interesting technical options and agronomic options uh, to reduce the use of chemical pesticides. And that's uh, an important avenue for, for uh, more sustainable production systems. 
Well, there's no one size fits all. I think that's the takeaway from what you've said and that, you know, you need very particular local ways of, of dealing with these issues and ways which are also connected to um, the global economy, but that there's no, you know, one single solution or one approach to enhancing food security. So uh, Dr. Martin Keim from the Center for Development Research in Bonn, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your insights. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you for watching this interview on theanalysis.news. We really can't make this content without you. So please consider going to our website, theanalysis.news, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Get on our mailing list so you don't miss any future episodes and see you next time. Mm -hmm.